Our message this morning is entitled, Likewise, You Wives, and will be a consideration of the biblical role of the wife as we are continuing our series together on the Christian home. And so we want to begin our thoughts today with our passage today that is the theme for this series, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. As we have pointed out to you the last two weeks together, God, in the beginning of time, designed marriage. He created Adam in the Garden of Eden, and we do very much literally believe that account. He caused the deep sleep to fall upon Adam. As he looked at his creation, he observed that everything was not only good, but very good. And yet he said it is not good that the man should be alone. So he causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He takes a rib from the side of Adam, and he creates Eve from the rib that he took from Adam and wakes Adam up, presents unto Adam this woman, this gift that would be his wife, Eve, the mother of all the living. Now, just theologically speaking, why would God not just create another being out of the dust of the earth the way that he did Adam? Because Adam is the first man, and he was a spiritual head over his family. We talked about that last week as we looked at the role of the husband in the home as a spiritual leader. As we even consider such fundamental theological concepts as original sin, it's important that we consider Adam and the fact that Eve was taken from him. As Adam fell, Eve fell in Adam. And every child that they would have as a part of that union would be fallen into sin. We're all sinners because of the sin of Adam, because Adam was our spiritual head. Praise God, another theological concept, there's the second Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, in the same way that Jesus, excuse me, in the same way that Adam represented all of his people when he sinned, Christ represents all of his people in salvation. And so, whereas Adam's transgression brought death to all that were within him, Jesus' righteousness and his death brought life to all that are in him. And so, as we consider marriage, we've began every sermon in this series with a reflection on the gospel. What we find as husbands and wives does parallel the relationship that we as Christ's people have with him. We as the church are the bride of Christ, and he, our Savior, is our husband. Now, we recognize that these are metaphors, just as the new birth is a metaphor, and the fact that we are sheep in his pasture is a metaphor. There are so many different biblical concepts regarding our relationship with Jesus, and these metaphors help us understand are they perfect in every sense of parallel? Well, does Jesus come down and shear us like a shepherd does his sheep? Well, no, not literally, but the same sort of relational tie between a shepherd and sheep is true to the Lord and us. Were we spiritually born in the new birth the way that a mother in pain bears her children? We were blessed with another baby born into our congregation this past week, and I praise God for that, have prayed for them over the past few months, and we rejoice and we pray for them even today. But our new birth experience wasn't one that was with the same sort of pains as bringing a baby into the world, but we learn things from that metaphor. So it is with marriage. Now, Jesus isn't individually our husbands in the sense that we're married to him and all of the parts of marriage is true for us. And it's also not fitting to say that as we as his bride, we're made up of individuals, and so Jesus has many brides. No, Jesus only has one bride. But what God is communicating to us here is that the same sort of bond that connects Christ to us connects husbands and wives. The same sort of bond that connects husbands and wives connects the Lord and us. And this is, as he said in verse 32, a great mystery. 
And the point that I brought out in message one from this series is even if you're not yet married or no longer married, if you are surviving after a spouse has even departed you, if you can't find the practical application in the sermon today, you can learn about the gospel message. And so today we study together the role of a wife in the home Even if you're not a wife to a husband anymore, or not yet, you can learn a lesson about the way you are to look at your Savior Jesus Christ and the sort of attitude that you ought to have towards him and towards his will for your life. And so we can learn, even single people, from the concept of marriage. We are, as a husband and a wife are to Christ, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. This is a great mystery. I speak concerning Christ and the church. We are his body. He is our head. As we begin to speak about our subject today and draw your attention more specifically to the wife, I want to speak to you women just a moment and tell you, that there is great motivation to be a godly, biblical wife. Now, what I just said is 180 degrees different than what the world around you will tell you today. They'll say that what the Bible presents as the way a wife should be in the home is oppressive, and it is enslaving, it is bondage, it is outdated, it is even... According to some, a form of bigotry. Most of that's based on a misunderstanding of what the Word of God says about the makeup of a marriage. But I tell you that what God's Word says is true, what God's Word says is good, what God's Word says is always right, even if it isn't popular. So many times in the history of humanity, those that held to what the Word of God taught, we're not in the majority. In fact, as we are called to be a counterculture, according to Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse in John chapter 15, you're in the world, but you're not of the world, we would expect then to be a minority, wouldn't we? I would be, I would be shocked if the majority of any culture believed the Word of God about most issues, because that's never the way it's been, and according to the Word of God, it's never the way it's going to be in this world. Now, we look for a world, a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness, where everyone will agree on every point of doctrine, because we will all be glorified, conformed to the image of Jesus. We will know, even as we are known, we see now through a glass darkly, but then face to face, there's coming a day when every single one of us will agree on every point of doctrine and the entire world that we live in being a world that is only a place where righteousness dwells, where Jesus himself is the light thereof, we will all agree on every point of doctrine. Down here we do the very best that we can. We do the very best that we can. There's several motivations to be a godly wife, and we're going to talk about it if you have a good husband and if you don't have a good husband today. Number one, motivations to be a godly wife, to create a good marriage environment and to help foster a successful marriage. I've made this point a couple of times recently in this series. Think about the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars that people spend on a wedding ceremony. I mean, I have seen some fancy, fancy weddings. You know that in my personal life, I'm a professional musician, and we often get hired to play wedding receptions. Those are usually the most fun things to play as a musician because everyone's happy. I won't comment on how much easier it is to play for an audience at an open bar, but anyway, we don't condone that. But, you know, when you're playing and they're yawning at you, they're usually not the case when you're playing at a reception. Everybody's dancing. Everybody's having a good time. That's nothing new. Even Jesus turned water to wine at a wedding celebration in Cana of Galilee. But we spend all of this money on weddings, thousands of dollars for the venue, $1,000 for the dress, thousands of dollars for the rings, $1,000 for the band. Our band begins at two to $3,000 to, to hire us because there's 20 of us. You can get a DJ for $800, one guy and an iPod and speakers. 
for $800. All of this money to cater it, all the food, all of the workers. Could you imagine spending, I said $5,000, and somebody said, that's not anywhere near what some people spend on weddings. Could you imagine spending $10,000, $15,000 on a ceremony to commemorate something that isn't a big deal? It doesn't matter if it lasts or not. Ah, oh, who cares? It's just $15,000. No one spends all that money. This is supposed to be the most important day in your life. <clears throat> and by the way, I remarked, and we'll say it again, that I, I really encourage those of you, if you're dating someone and love them and want to be married with them, corona weddings are the way to go. You've got no debt. You start off your marriage without any sort of financial trappings, just... Get married and start a family. That looks a whole lot more like it did in the Bible times than some of the, some of the stuff that we have going on today. Just go ahead and get married and enjoy being married. We want to have a good marriage environment. Being a godly husband and a godly wife enables us, it facilitates a happy marriage environment. You wives speaking to you directly, you help nurture in the heart of your husband his love, his admiration, and his adoration. Now, if I were to ask you, ladies, do you want to be adored by the man that you married? I don't think any of you would say, no, I really don't care if he adores me or not. Don't you want to be adored? Being the biblical wife that God has called you to be, greatly facilitates his adoration. I said it to you last week that men greatly desire respect and women greatly desire love. I commended or I challenged you, I encouraged you men to be the type of man that your wife can respect and should respect. Likewise, lady, I, I would exhort you, sisters, to be the type of women that are easy for your husbands to love. The book of Proverbs is interesting in the way that it presents things to us, but it uses colorful ways to describe the agony that can be living with a contentious person. It talks about the fact that it's either easier to be in the wilderness alone, I assume by that a homeless person in the middle of the woods, than to be in a nice, large, luxurious home with a contentious person. Being a biblical wife helps foster in your husband love and admiration and adoration. It also, sisters, if God blesses you with children, you have children in your home, you teach them, by example, respect. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, respect is not something that is very commonly found among any people of any age group in America today. We don't respect each other. We don't respect each other in our opinions. We don't respect each other's choices. We don't respect each other's boundaries. We don't respect each other's space. Just the other day, a lady pulled up at a gas pump and began to cuss Ethan out because he was too far from the pump. And she wasn't young. Oh, no, she wasn't young. She was rather aged, just cursed him, and he just put it in drive and drove off. He got himself out of the situation. We don't respect each other. Why would people go through a town, burst the windows of the businesses in the town, steal what they want from the businesses, set them on fire, flip cars, and parade away with profanity. They have no respect for the property of others. They have no respect for the law. They have no respect for the penalty of violating the law of the land. We live in a world with a breakdown, fundamentally, of the concept of respect. <clears throat> Sisters, I, I cannot overemphasize cannot overemphasize how you teach your children respect by the way you speak about and to your husband. If you were to put your husband down every time he's out of the room, what do you think that communicates to your children about him? 
Do you think they're going to respect him? I guarantee you, if that happens, one of the two of you will not be respected by your children. It may be the husband, but as they grow up, if they see that he's a godly man, it might be the wife. We teach our children respect for authority as we do respect one another in the homes. And I challenged you men on that last week. Look, our young men learn how to treat a woman by watching us. And if we're cruel to her and we put her down and we talk bad to her, if we're unfaithful to her, we are teaching our children to do that. And we're teaching our daughters what type of man to look for. That ought to terrify every single one of us that has daughters. We teach them respect in the home by the example that we set. Another very pressing and crucial motivation is found in the book of Titus chapter 2, and we'll come back to Titus chapter 2 through the course of today's message near the end. But as Paul exhorts young women, and he first exhorted aged women, and he told them to teach the young women, he says that they should be obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Sometimes we think that our own homes have to do only with us. What's the big deal if I'm not a good husband? What's the big deal if I'm not a good wife? It's a victimless crime aside from the poor lady that has to live with me. That the word of God be not blasphemed. If I am not the husband I ought to be and my wife is not the wife that she ought to be, if we're not the husbands we ought to be and the wives we ought to be, the word of God is blasphemed by my behavior. Now, the word blaspheme means to speak evil of. You might not be speaking evil of it with our words, but we certainly do it with our actions. And the old expression goes, actions speak louder than words. We have to be careful as spouses, to be biblical, that the word of God be not blasphemed. You might say that these are extraordinarily high stakes. And chiefly, as with everything in our life, as we pointed out in message one in this series, we want to bring glory to God in our homes. You see, this is beneficial to us, and that's enough of a reason in and of itself, isn't it? If I were to tell you that it's beneficial for you to take this capsule every day, and if you take this capsule every day, men, you'll be stronger, women, you'll be slimmer, you won't get wrinkles on your face, it'll be better for you all the days of your life, it'll add 20 years to your life simply by taking this capsule once a day, and it costs a quarter. Where do I buy these? How do I get these? If it benefits you, that much you ought to want that. Beyond the way it benefits me and you, being a godly husband, being a godly wife glorifies God, and even above our own benefit, we are to be concerned as God's people with the glory of God. I desire for God to be glorified in the way that I deal with my wife, and the way that I deal with my children, in the way that our home functions. I want to glorify Him. As we pointed out from 1 Corinthians, we are to do all, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God. The old confessional statement you find in catechisms and creeds, and it's repeated so commonly, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. It's why we were created. It's why we exist. It's the meaning of life. It's why He saved us. Because he loved us to the praise of the glory of his grace. We exist to glorify him. And you sisters, as you think about loving your husband and your children, and this word that we'll consider next, which is the word subject or submit, and what it means and what it doesn't mean, I want you to have in mind that you do all of this as unto the Lord for the glory of God, you are the godly wife that the Scripture speaks about. Not because some preacher told you to. Not because we live in a patriarchal society. I can throw out sociological terms. Not because it's the way that men have so rigged it because they were stronger 
thousands of years ago and you got the short end of the stick, but because you want to glorify God. I don't think we hear enough sermons in today's time about desiring the glory of God. We need to want to glorify God. Well, let's begin looking specifically at the role of the wife in the home, the role of you sisters in your respective marriages. The first thing that we want to do is go right to the controversy. Let's get this out of the way. And as I say out of the way, if you could see the outline, the bullet points that I have before me, 60 to 70 percent of the page is under this subheading. So when we say get it out of the way, we're really going to spend some time here. What does it mean that a wife is subject to her own husband? That's a biblical statement. Paul would say to the Ephesians, you wives... Be in subjection to your husbands, submit to them, to be subject to them. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit yourselves. What does that mean? It does not mean, it does not mean, husbands, hear me, that your wife is a slave to you. It does not mean that she is to be abused. It does not mean that she is to be treated like a child It does not mean that she is property. It does not mean that you have to order her around and control her and command her as if she isn't an autonomous being created in the image of God himself, beloved of God, and saved by Christ. What did we learn last week about the way the husband is to look at his wife? He is to nourish her. He is to cherish her. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, Paul said in Ephesians 5. And the wives are one what with the husband? One flesh. We're to nourish them. We're to cherish them. We're to care for them. We're to love them. I give you every permission in the world to pamper them. You sisters didn't hear that. I told you the story of the old deacon at the church where my brother now pastors that we grew up attending so often who referred to his wife of many decades as his dear little bride. As you're an aged man, that's your little bride. You call her your little bride. Someone that you love and care for and provide for and protect. You cherish her. Last week, we focused on the role of the husband as the servant leader. We're not petty dictators as husbands. Our wives aren't then some subject that we command around as if they're our slave. As a servant leader, I'm to love her and I'm to lead her by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. But at the same time, every organization on planet Earth has a chain of command. Even organizations full of people who know what they're doing need a chain of command. Otherwise, it's chaotic. You've heard the expression, herding cats. You know the difference in cats and dogs. They're just as intelligent, but they just choose not to do what you say. Dogs love you, they want to make you happy, they look at you and they pant and they smile and they wag their tail because they really do care about you. Cats, on the other hand, if they were large enough, they would kill you for the fun. They're neurotic creatures. That is scientifically proven. They understand what you say, they just don't want to listen. Nah, you call them kitty, 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 the only time they come is when they're hungry. And it's not because they like you, it's because they want to eat. We need leadership in every organization or we're simply herding the cats. Everybody runs different directions, nobody knows what's going on. There has to be a leader. And so God creates the home, the first institution he made, and the husband is a very real leader in the home. He answers directly to Christ. He is the head of the house. In a spiritual sense, he's also to work and to provide in the home. 
The way that I like to look at this is not that the wife is somehow a slave, but that she is second in command of the home. Now, I look at it in the sense of president, vice president, CEO and CFO. Maybe you want to consider it the chairman of the board and the CEO. I don't care which analogy you want. The four-star general and the three-star general. Commander-in-chief and the head of the joint chiefs. It doesn't matter. The husband is the head of the house. The wife is the next position of authority in the home. Now, I've known some husbands that looked at their wives as slaves. I just want to kick that idea to the curb today. Now, I have good reason for spending time on the husband in both messages and the wife only on the wife's message. And we'll bring this point out in just a moment to you. So hang on to that. As we get this most difficult, unpopular, politically incorrect part out of the way for us today, Scripture presents marriage as one that has a structure of rank and authority, and this structure of rank and authority is based upon, patterned around, the order of creation in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time. Now, Paul would use this as he wrote to the minister Timothy, his dear, dear friend and his apprentice, his son of the ministry in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, and he talks about authority in the local church. And this is why conservative Christians have only had males who were Ministers, and if you think that sounds like it's restrictive, just wait. We don't give most men the opportunity to stand and teach a congregation of God's people. Very, very few people on planet earth are called by God to preach the gospel. Flip back to the Old Testament and read. You have these men like Nathan the prophet and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and they were few and far between. Does that mean there were no women that were used by God? No, women were used by God in amazing ways in the Old Testament. We just finished a series on the book of Ruth. What an amazing story that was. She was a woman who God used in amazing ways. You have Esther, who was so bold as to burst in before Xerxes and save her people, the Jews, from the conspiracy that was against him. There was one woman who took a nail and drove it through the head of a man in Scripture. Sister Hannah sent me a meme of that yesterday, and it's going to make it into the sermon. What do you look for in a wife? A woman who's willing to drive a spike through the head of my enemies. There you go. If you're wondering what I look for when I picked a wife, that would be it. You have... Many examples of wonderful, godly, leading women even. But when it comes to the person who God has sent to preach the word, it's always a male as far as standing before you and teaching as an elder or a bishop because that's the order that God created the home. That's not intended to be bigotry in any sense. I try to be very careful the way I present this to you. But Paul wrote in... 1 Timothy chapter 2, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And that does not mean that you sisters cannot sing or call out a hymn or say amen. Somebody needs to. You know, we're the frozen chosen here. We don't say amen very quietly if we do. And the mask muffles. I can't even see if you mouth it anymore. We don't want them to think we're enjoying it. I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority, but to be in silence in a teaching capacity. That's talking about as a preacher. Why does he say this? For Adam was not deceived, or excuse me, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Eve was tricked by Satan. Adam had no excuse. And that's why by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. The burden... The responsibility there for all the suffering we've ever experienced in this world is not on Eve. Satan beguiled her. It's on Adam. So if we men want to think high of ourselves, ha-ha, we're the man. Uh, Yeah, you're the man, and because of one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. But God did create Adam first, and because of this structure, because of this framework, because of this organization, what Paul sees as the role of the minister in the church is based upon... The structure of the home. 
the structure of Adam being created and then Eve. And that's the word of God. Now, you might be wondering, well, I'm a sister and I have a desire to teach. Well, let me give you a couple of ways that you can relieve that burden. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety. Sisters, you have a congregation every day in your home. It is your children. I get to preach to you for one hour a week on Sunday. And when we're in person, 40 minutes on Wednesday nights, which we're not at present. You moms, you have your children hours and hours a day. Teenagers, my mom's so preachy. Good! Praise God! I hope she preaches your ears off your head. Women are delivered from silence through preaching to their children. Women, preach to your children. Share the Word of God with them. You know this man, Timothy, that Paul writes to had a Jewish mother and a Greek father... His mother was a believer. His father, there is no indication in Scripture that he was a believer. But Paul remarked that from a child, he has known the Holy Scriptures because he was taught the Word of God by his grandmother and his mother. Women that he names as Lois and Eunice, great women of the faith, who taught their children. Titus chapter 2, the older women teach the younger women how to love their husbands and how to love their children. Sisters, you have the responsibility to mentor younger women. And might I just charge younger women to pick mentors that are worth having. I am not shy at all about saying that is not a person that you need to look up to as a husband or a wife. If I learn that someone's influencing a younger person in this church and there's someone that we do not need to follow their influence because maybe it's a husband that's cruel to his wife, you don't want to be like him. Maybe it's a woman who continually argues and puts down her husband. Have you ever known women that do that? I have people in mind, not going to say any names. You know, names are changed to protect the guilty. I have faces in mind. Don't you use them as an example? But you older sisters have the responsibility of teaching the younger sisters. There's all kinds of teaching that needs to be done by sisters in the church. But how does Paul frame his system, his understanding of the role of teaching authority in the church? He does so based upon Adam and Eve, the framework of the marriage. God created marriage with a certain structure of authority. And husbands, again, I challenge you today. God didn't place you in charge to be a Lord but a servant leader, and you are accountable to Him. You're the spiritual leader of your home. If we fail in that job, our children suffer. And if enough of us fail in that job, entire civilizations fall. Mark my word, every problem we have right now in American society began with a fundamental breakdown of the home. People don't walk through streets busting out windows and setting cars on fire and threatening politicians and people and everybody else and doing and saying the things they do because they were disciplined and taught to respect authority as a child, that's for sure. The home breaks down, then society breaks down, and then the church finds itself suffering. How do we impact it? It's certainly not through politics. We impact it by strengthening our churches through the gospel and through bringing God's children into the church, harvesting them into the church, and affecting them with the word. And that is how society is impacted. We do not have a political solution to our problems in America today. We have a spiritual solution. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to the pulling down of strongholds, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians. Now, as we think about the order of the home and what Paul in specific would say to you sisters, and this is very interesting, and it's a point that I had not considered until this past week as I was reflecting on this weekend's message, Paul is surprisingly brief about wives in the home. We had more than we could look at in last week's message simply by Paul in the book of Ephesians to husbands. We talked and talked and talked, and it was a 65-minute sermon 65 minutes, and we didn't get through it all. To wives, Paul is very brief. No, he talks about women, and he talks about men. 
He talks about preachers, and he talks about sisters, and he talks about modesty, and he talks about all sorts of issues, and widows. But to wives, he is brief in an unprecedented way for Paul. His sentences commonly go for verses after verses after verse after verse and they end in semicolons and colons and you have parenthetical statements with semicolons and colons. This is the Apostle Paul. And yet to wives, look at the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 18. He is so very brief. Wives, submit your husbands, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. And then you're expecting more. And then he begins to command husbands to love wives and be not bitter against them. Bitterness in the home is a killer of marriage, by the way. That's next, next week's, Lord willing, next week's message. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. By the way, unto your own husbands, not unto another husband. Some dude walks into my house and starts telling my wife what to do, and he's going to find himself no longer in my house, and it probably won't be me who does it. Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as is fit in the Lord. As is fit in the Lord. It's appropriate. It's proper. It's fit. The root of fitting, fit. It means it's a good thing. Ephesians chapter 5. We speak to each other in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our hearts unto the Lord giving thanks always to all things, for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. That's all of us in the church. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And then he goes immediately into the husband is the head of the wife. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, let the wives be to their own husbands. Husbands, love your wives. And look at all the scripture that he, he's already exhorting the husbands in a sense and building his exhortation in verse 23. And he continues through verse 33, and we have this little statement, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. And by the way, there's a hint in there. You say, I don't have a good husband, which is the next thing we're going to look at today. I don't have a good husband. What do you do? As unto the Lord gives you a perspective, sisters, that changes the way you look at that man who sometimes stinks and sometimes tired and sometimes is rude and sometimes doesn't get the things done around the house that you want him to. No amens. I really expected some amens, maybe from Rachel. But as unto the Lord means that you're looking at him and serving him as if you're serving Christ. I serve you as if I serve Christ. I love you as if I love Christ. It changes the object of your service to him. I give you the parallel here. We often talk about even if you can't respect the man, you respect the office. And it's so similar of a concept. Even if the husband isn't worth respecting. And husbands, I'm not going to re-rant last week's message to us, but we have to be men worth respecting. Even if he's not, you respect the office and you honor him as unto the Lord. How brief is Paul? Peter says far, far more in the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. And Implied in 1 Peter 3 isn't just wives with any husband, but wives who may have an unbelieving husband. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may, without the word, be won by the conversation of the wives. In other words, as it regards their conversion, sisters can impact their husband through their godly lifestyle and faithfulness to Christ, that an unbelieving husband could be converted to discipleship through the behavior of the wife. How's that for a motivation? If you love Christ, what greater joy is it that a husband and a wife can serve Christ together? If you're a wife and the husband is not a believer. Now, let me give you a caveat. Before your conversation, which means lifestyle, 
Conversation means lifestyle. Before your conversation can impact that husband, God has to change the heart. One of the things that I will point out in counseling over and over is God must change the heart. Even if a man is a lover of Christ, but his heart has grown cold many times, God has to open our senses and our awareness. We can be affected by hardness of heart. We can succumb to hardness of heart even as lovers of Christ according to Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Oh, dear God, let not my heart be hardened that I would be cruel to my wife, that I would be harsh to my wife. But if God changes the heart of a husband, a wife can win her husband by her conversation without the word, without the preaching of a preacher. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear of God, whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair. Young ladies, I'd love to preach a sermon to you about modesty, but we don't have time. Let me just say this. Young women, women, there's an inner beauty that you do not see depicted on Instagram. There is an inner beauty, an inner beauty that is far more attractive and glorifying to God and glorious for you than you see from models and celebrities and influencers. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair, they would, and I read descriptions of this in some commentaries this week, the unusual ways that they would fix their hair with spikes sticking out of them and sometimes plating that was made of gold. If one of you sisters came to church next Sunday with gold-plated hair, might think that a little strange. Not that sort of adorning and of the wearing of gold and putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price. Now, let me just focus on this briefly. We can appear, and all of us can appear, to be quiet and meek on the outside, and yet at the same time we're screaming at the top of our lungs on the inside at the person who is in the room with us that we're speaking to. Have you ever done that? Sister Megan shook her head real good first. Um, where you're, you're screaming on the inside, but on the outside you're just like, okay. This is exhorting you sisters to be adorned with this meek and quiet spirit that is of a great price in the sight of God, the hidden man of the heart, where you get this Christ and putting on the nature of Christ. And this is to you sisters an adorning. This adorns you. Instead of screaming on the inside, it's authentic. It's Legitimate. It's real. You really, really love and care for the person that you're talking to. In this case, your husband, even an unbelieving husband, because you love him and you want him to be led to discipleship. Quiet spirit. Meek and quiet spirit. Now, by the way, this also infers, speaking to us husbands... This is speaking of the froward husbands, if you will. This assumes that if a husband is a follower of Christ, that he's being a good husband, doesn't it? This applies when a woman has a husband who isn't a believer. A froward husband. A disobedient husband to Christ. If the husband is a Christian... If he's a disciple, if he's a follower of Christ, it is expected and assumed that we are loving our wives as Christ loved the church. Do we always do that? No, we don't. But we're commanded to and we're assumed to. 
Now, lastly, this brings me to the crucial work of the mother in the home, the wife in the home. And I said it last week. You do not begin your family when you have children. You begin your family when you are married. For this call shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. You began your family the moment you got married. If you never have children, if you never have children, a family began the day that you said, I do. There are two words that I want to emphasize for you as we bring our thoughts to a close today. We have about eight minutes remaining. Those words are guide and keep. Guide and keep. Paul wrote in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children. Therefore, you always ask, what's it there for? And he says that we don't want people to be idle and wander from house to house, being idle and tattlers and busybodies speaking things which they ought not. It's often said that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And so I will, therefore, that younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Guide the house. This word comes from a Greek compound word that includes the Greek word from which we get the English word despot, despotism, which is a synonym for dictator. In fact, we refer to cruel despots as tyrannical dictators. Now, in the Greek language, this meant to be the ruler of a household. But the word there for despot means to rule. You, know, you wives, especially you mothers, I want you to have that idea in mind as we come to the conclusion of today's message you are a ruler, a despot in your home. Have you ever heard the expression, my home is not a dictator, or excuse me, my home is not a democracy, but is a dictatorship? Yes. Yes, and that woman that is your mother is in charge, youngsters, to tell you what to do, to make you brush your teeth, to make you eat, and eat what she wants you to eat, however she wants you to eat, and that's her choice. I guarantee you, when you walk into my house... Sister Rachel guides the home. She keeps the home. And we'll comment on what keep means in just a minute. It doesn't mean vacuums. But in my home, as the one who guides the home, I'm the one who has always worked. I did not pick out the couch. I did not pick out the cabinet color. I did not pick out the tile and the floor. I did not pick out the countertop. I did not pick out the bathroom mirror. I did not pick out the lights. I did not pick out the tile in the bathroom. Do you get the point? If I designed my home, we would have off-white walls, white trim. It would still have popcorn on the ceiling. It would probably still have all the carpet it had when we moved in, and it was pink. I don't like pink, but I wouldn't change it because I'm a dude. I heard Elder Gary Harvey make this point. Men, let... Don't put up a fight on your wives when they want to decorate that house the way that they want to decorate it. God instinctively designed them to want to do that. And we're just kind of going along. <laughs> we remind you that all contributions to Flint River are tax deductible. <laughs> now, when it comes to picking out a camshaft for the Corvette, that's my territory. But when it comes to that sort of thing, God designed them that way. God designed them that way. It means to manage. means to rule. Again, that's the word from which we get the English word despot and despotism. That's not slavery, is it? That's authority. There's a chain of command, but that's authority. The next word is the word keep. Titus chapter 2, we already reflected on this passage. I'll just read a couple of these verses because I want them to be in your hearing. The aged women likewise that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. It makes holiness look beautiful, aged women. Not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their children, to love their husbands, 
to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home. Good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Keepers at home. So many times we, and and in fact the English word housekeeper has come to mean someone who sweeps and mops and vacuums and makes the bed and washes the clothes. Rachel does not let me touch her washing machine and her dryer because it's fancy and has all these buttons and knobs, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. I've never complained. I dump all the clothes and I hit on. And she says, you didn't sort red and blue and white. You sort clothes? I thought you washed clothes. You put jeans in with dress clothes, okay? You're not supposed to wash that on hot. It's going to make it fade, huh? But you know the word keeper does not mean the housekeeper in the sense of cleaning the house. You might have thought that it did. Do you know this word actually keeper? This word actually translates from the Greek word for prison guard? In fact, the 1611 English word keeper, do you know what it meant? A prison guard. Children, this might not be a very encouraging message for you. I'm sorry. (laughs) Keepers at home means the guard of the home. The guard of the home. Remember last week we talked about that God designed husbands physically to go work and the women physically to conceive and bear and nurse children. And so most of their time was spent in their young adult years doing just that. Who had to work? Then the men had to work. Sisters, it is your job to keep the home, which means to guard the home. You look up that word keeper and you find it, the Philippian jailer. All these other men who were jailers, who were keepers of the prison, they were what? They were keepers of the prison. They were the person who kept the prisoners in the prison. You sisters, you moms are prison guards. Silliness aside, you have the obligation and responsibility to protect your children and the influences in their home, to take a stick and drive Satan out as hard as you can to protect your children. Lastly, does this mean that a sister, a wife, or a woman can't have a job? No. In fact, if you read Proverbs chapter 31... The Proverbs 31 woman sowed things and sold things. And not only that, she considered a field and she bought the field as an investment for her home, for her family. So she was engaged in production. She was engaged in trade. She was engaged in investment. And she's the virtuous woman. And her price is far above that of rubies. Lastly, As we bring this to a close, sisters, you find great fulfillment greater than anything this world can offer you in being the wife that God has called you to be.